This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me this week for the very first time here on the NX-01 is Norm Lau. Norm, welcome. Chris, I am so excited to be here, and I hope I didn't say so with too much of a Californian accent, because <laughs> sometimes I do that. I'm so excited to be here, but I am. It's a, it's a thrill, and uh, it's, it's a great honor for me to be um part of this broadcast, especially Warp 5, since um, I have participated to be associate producer for this show. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. So I I hope you're set. I know you had uh, dinner before the show. I hope you didn't eat too much because I had Chef cook up something really nice for you. We'll partake of that after the show today. But until then, we're going to talk about a topic that came up in our listener discussion group on Facebook, which is called the Babel Conference. And some people were asking about Hoshi Sato and the way that she behaves, especially early in the first season, and being very scared, frightened, kind of neurotic. And people felt that this was not befitting of a Starfleet officer. They would expect more. And I thought that actually, in the 22nd century, this is probably not uncommon. And the expectations that we would have for a Starfleet officer at that point in history are really different from what we're accustomed to in other Star Trek. Well, one of the things that struck me funny when I was reading that particular segment uh, in the forum was, what is the expectation for the officer at this time? What do people, i.e. fans of the show, either experienced fans of Star Trek coming into the show or people that wanted to try Star Trek for the very first time and thought that Enterprise was a good starting point for them, what was their expectation for someone who is going out to deep space for the very first time? That's a good question. And is it, or was it, because they're trained by Starfleet, does Starfleet have the connotation in Enterprise of being this already well-established, well-oiled machine of being able to produce these crewmen who can immediately endure high-stress situations 
that have never been presented to them before based on simulation and theory training. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting position to take because you're talking about a TV viewer who doesn't really know anything about Star Trek yet. And they're watching this show where people are traveling on a spaceship. Like you said, what are their expectations for how humans would react to that experience? Whereas we as Star Trek fans who have watched the original series and TNG and DS9 and Voyager, we're accustomed to, it's a society in which working in space is commonplace. It's something that many people do. And even the people who don't do it, they're mostly accustomed to interacting with aliens or using spaceships to at least get to uh, nearby planets or moons. It's a very common thing for them. And the TV viewer who doesn't know anything about that, who's watching Enterprise for the first time, they're probably more like the actual people of the Enterprise era on Earth where the idea that we would have these starships that can take us into the depths of the galaxy at warp five, and we really only know the Vulcans at that point, and then we know a few people like Flox as a Denobulan who's there as part of the Vulcan exchange program. For those people, this would all be very new, just like for that TV viewer that you talked about. This is all new for them as well. Well, I agree. And I think it was a really good idea to bring in someone as experienced as DePaul to represent the, the Vulcan you know, Science Academy and someone like Phlox, another scientist, another doctor, as advisors to the primarily human crew of almost 83 crewmen uh, so that they weren't completely in the dark. But you know, by and large, it was a group of humans that felt that they were ready to go out into outer space based on training based on simulation, based on understanding what they think they needed to know, there is a little pride goeth before a fall there. And in the episodes that follow, you see that with them stumbling around with their mm-hmm. choices. But that's that's what Archer said in, in first in not first flight in um in Broken Bow. We stumble and we fall, but we eventually will get up. That's that's how the human race works. Without the mm-hmm. challenge in front of us, we don't really push ourselves to our fullest potential. However, there are still pockets of personalities that will come about when you're tested. And in Hoshi's case, I think that the writers were able to tap into something that was real. And with new fans, when they're watching the show, they can go on this journey with her or with Travis or with a variety of different crewmen who don't respond the way that Sulu or Jordy mm-hmm. or Chakotay would respond because they have the luxury of all of these experiences logged as part of what they call required reading at the Academy. Because that's brought up a lot in the series. Right, right. So, okay, I want to touch on the characters that you just mentioned because as I'm listening to you say that, and I was thinking, especially when you mentioned Travis, I was thinking about the uh, the boomer angle that they played. You know, he was mm-hmm. born in space and then how once you play that card, you're done. Where do you go from that? Because as soon as everyone's out there in space, well, that's not so special anymore. And also talking about the things that people would study. Uh, before we get to the things that people would study at the Academy and sort of the differences in the Academy, let's talk about these characters for a minute because 
I went into this discussion today really thinking about Hoshi because that's what we discussed in the Babel conference. But you mentioned Travis, and here's another person who has experience in space because he grew up on this ship, but he's mostly traveling between the stars. So it's pretty quiet for them, right? They live in space, but it's not the kind of environment that we see with Starfleet officers. So while Hoshi is the earthbound character, Travis is the one that grew up in space. They're actually quite similar, which Mm -hmm. I think is the point that you were making there in that neither one of them are the military types. They're the civilians that now find themselves in space. They are Starfleet officers. They went to the academy. But if you look at someone like Archer or look at AG, these types of officers, they were pilots. And if you look on Earth today, men and women who fly airplanes and fly fighter craft and astronauts, you know, these are really strong, very brave people. And so I can see them being on the NX-01 and being more in command of themselves in those situations. You have to contrast that with the people like Hoshi and Travis, who are really more like civilians. When we get to the 23rd or 24th century, I feel like we don't see as many of those civilian types on the ships, because even the people who might be civilians, like let's say Leia Brahms Mm -hmm. on The Next Generation, okay, yeah, she's not a military person per se, but the idea of space travel and alien civilizations and the interactions, that's ordinary stuff to her at that point. Well, I think there's a, a nice distinction there when you bring up Leia Brahms with Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets. Because Starfleet, they are the ones that are going out and maintaining the, you know, basically the cohesion of the United Federation of Planets. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to 2151 or the NX-01 time. Starfleet doesn't have that basis of the shared experiences that Kirk, Picard, Cisco, and their command abilities that they can draw upon from Archer's logs, from Garth's logs, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. so when you're looking at what you expect from a Starfleet officer, you expect yes, a certain amount of courage because they are going out into space. But like, let's take a look at. And the reason why I like bringing up Hoshi and Travis is because they are the youngest of that right. bridge crew. And Travis does have more experience being a spacefarer, but not necessarily a space explorer per se. Right. Underneath the treatise of what the tenants of Starfleet to boldly go to explore strange new worlds, he does have a a small point of reference every single time he goes out there because yes, he was a boomer. Yes, he was on these ships. They were on long voyages, but he didn't have the mission behind him per se. And the mission involves X, Y, and Z get to the planet, study the planet, research the planet, catalog it. Hopefully we won't run into trouble. If we do, are your piloting skills up to task? Will you be able to get us in and around or out of danger? That's pretty important because let's take a scene from one of my all-time favorite movies, Glory. The one, that scene where, you know, there was a great rifle. He's a sniper. 
He was great at, at, at being a shot. Under pressure, not so great. So really, it shows what people can do when they need to rise to the occasion of who they need to be for that ship. And Sato's case, I'd like to reference the, uh, the episode where she is just flustered beyond belief, uh, especially at the very end where she tries to make first contact communication with the Axanar. Okay, so fight or flight. Yeah. Fight or flight, yes. Mm-hmm. And she forsook all the technology that was in front of her because Archer, as a great manager, i.e. captain, was able to ask her to do the one thing that she was there to do, communicate. She's not there to be a combat officer. She's not there necessarily to be a mature bridge officer. She's there to communicate with foreign races that she's never, ever, ever, ever met or would even conceive of meeting. And she had to step up, as humans do, to her challenge. And she did. Does that make her the most experienced right out of the Academy Starfleet officer? No. It gives her the ability for all of the people that are watching along with us to her to understand that we're not perfect. We didn't get into space perfectly wrapped up. And these people are going to make mistakes, but to err is human. And it makes characters more believable that way, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, she did rise up, right? She's nervous, as I would expect her to be. But she comes through and she does the job that she's there for. And talking about Travis and his piloting skills, I think he passed that test. He's a great pilot. Mm-hmm. But he had to have the opportunity to, to actually develop those skills and put them into action on the Enterprise. He didn't just... Like, I can't imagine... Well, certainly not at this point in the Academy... You're not going to have flight training that involves piloting a Warp 5 starship through an asteroid field, right? Because there's only one of those ships, and it's new. You are pressing the button to pull it out of dry dock for the very, very first time ever yourself. So obviously, there is no one with experience of flying that type of ship to teach you how to do it at the Academy. So it's all new to them. Well, well, let's talk about the Academy a little bit more and, you know, some of the background behind it. It was, I think it's, again, easy for us as Star Trek fans who have watched all of these years of stories set in the 23rd and 24th century to just kind of assume that Starfleet Academy has always been around. Mm -hmm. It's just always there. I know when... Like if, if you're a kid growing up somewhere and you have a university nearby, you feel like, well, that university's always been there, right? I I graduated from the University of Alabama and I remember the sign, you know, the brick signs at the entrance when you enter the campus and it has established 1831 on it. So there's this definitive starting point that's relatively recent, actually, You know, here in Japan, I walk past temples that have been standing on the same spot for over a thousand years, you know, and here's a university that started in 1831. So Starfleet Academy wasn't always around. It had to be founded. And we don't know the exact date of the founding, but at least in the 2140s, it was around, which is a decade before the NX-01 launches. And then finally, in 2161, it was incorporated into the Federation when the Federation was founded. And then it really became that institute for training 
officers for Starfleet. But before that, it was more about training personnel for the activities of United Earth in space, which is very different from Starfleet when we think about Kirk and Picard mm-hmm. and the Janeway and people like that going out there. So just to compare and contrast a little bit about the types of things that we would expect them to be taught there, I already talked about how there's no one to teach Travis how to fly an NX-class starship because there were no NX-class starships right, before exactly. they left in Broken Bow. And things like with Hoshi, I mean, xenolinguistics. Hoshi Sato is responsible for creating, she played a key role in creating the Universal Translator that everyone else uses in all the Star Trek that we know later on. We see her at the beginning of Broken Bow teaching languages to these students. So xenolinguistics would be something that probably wasn't taught at the academy. Maybe Vulcan. That would probably be it. Like maybe Vulcan. Prior to the founding of the Federation. But it would be very commonplace. I mean, it would be something that you would teach elementary school children probably in the 24th century. I think um, for USPA or the United Earth Space Probe Agency, I think that probably one of their main focuses would be on obviously advanced mathematics, theoretical physics, those type of applications that would allow them to start building craft. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's kind of it's mentioned in the name. So I guess it would be, I guess it, if you wanted to, you would take your Cal Poly techs of the world, your MITs of the world, and start looking at consolidating them to start educating an even more advanced level of student, if you will. But that's only really one part of it because I'm sure that at the very beginnings of Starfleet or when USPA became Starfleet, they're like, well, if we're going out into space, we need to do this. We need to be able to navigate. So there's going to be, I guess, for lack of better phrase, stellar cartography in a way. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're exchanged with the Vulcans at the time. There's going to be, well, we need an understanding of how you navigate space. Maybe our version of three-dimensional spatial dynamics isn't the same, obviously, as your, it's like language. It's not the same as your understanding of, well, you know. Well, I'm sure according to the Vulcans, it was very primitive, Norm. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, literally, when the, when the Vulcans came and, and they made no bones about it, and they, when uh, we watched them in the first couple episodes that, you know, we weren't ready, yeah. Starfleet wasn't ready to go out into the stars. And they still perceived us as being naive. They still perceived us as being inexperienced and very childlike in our, in our mannerisms and in our poutiness and rushingness. So, but I digress. Going back to the, the original <laughs> tenants, I don't think that it would be any different than, say, if you wanted to put together a program that, that needed just certain levels of advanced expertise in a variety of different fields, mm-hmm. medicine, science, communications, Defense, armaments, management, um, and command. And probably leadership courses. Yes, leadership courses. Which would be not that different than what would be taught today, probably. I guess if we take a look at the original, the original series breakdown of the different departments in terms of command, gold, Mm -hmm. sciences, blue, operations. Well, operations has a a wider variety, I think, of of subclasses in the division. 
But you, those are really kind of like the basis of what you need or what Starfleet needed to go out there and start creating these departments that would run a starship and would be able to function as as the team is needed to fulfill mm-hmm. missions. I'm sure along the lines you're going to need it. Well, we haven't run into that planet. We need a you know a special type of biologist or we need a special type of geologist. I think there are general you know practitioners of those specific philosophies or or sciences on the NX01. But that's the best they could do at the time. Again, they had no shakedown on this ship. They were, let's get Clang, and we need to take him back to Kronos to avert this catastrophe. We'll shake down as we go. Okay, that's probably not the prime way of doing it, but it's, as humans, what we thought was necessary to get the job done. Yeah, I see it as being very advanced courses compared to what we have today because our scientific knowledge and our engineering knowledge and all would be much greater than it is now. But let's also not forget that we had World War III and Earth was decimated and we're coming out of that again. And chances are some knowledge was lost during that time period. And even if it wasn't, resources may be scarce. It's, you know, the, the whole system of society and civilization is sort of being rebuilt. So there's there's at least a century there of us kind of being put on pause, right, after that conflict and recovering from that conflict. So even though it's 200 years in our future, it's not even 200 years, in fact, at this point, right? It's um, a bit over 100 years, 140 years. It isn't really because so much of that time was spent in World War III and recovering from it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of science beyond Earth, maybe we've done a good bit of exploring our own solar system. So we're familiar with spending time on Mars, on the moon, maybe some of the moons of outer gas giant planets. But that's still really different than dealing with truly alien worlds way out there somewhere else. And so when it comes to the academics and the courses that would be taught, yeah, I think it it is sort of like you said, you know, like MIT, mm-hmm. um, advanced, maybe. It's engineering, it's JPL, advanced. We're kind of ramped up. But I think the people coming out of there would still be a lot like us, just with more advanced knowledge of our own little world, the planet we live on in the solar system around us, which is just so different from the people on Kirk's ship or Picard's ship. So if we talk about those people who would have graduated, I call it the class of 2151, but it's the people who graduated between the time the Academy was founded and when the NX-01 launched. Those are the people that we would have there on the ship. Mm-hmm. How do you see those people as new graduates from the academy, as new officers, how they've been prepared compared to the people of the 23rd or 24th century. And actually, here's something, a specific one that I was thinking about earlier today. In coming of age, we see the test that they put Wesley through to try to get into the academy. And that involves things that I feel wouldn't even be on the minds 
of the academy at this point in history. So right there, you you have an example of, and that's not even being trained at the academy. That's just trying to get into the academy. That's like taking your space SATs. You know, we see the real difference in in what those people would be like. Well, I think that the key word here is escalation. The escalation of technology, the escalation of how large the universe is at the time from when Archer launched to when Kirk was in command and when Picard was in command. I mean, the universe is relatively larger in scale in terms of what has been explored, what the, what has been brought to the United Federation of Planets, what technology has been shared, what knowledge has been shared culturally, scientifically, religiously. So you have all of these larger formatted bodies of knowledge that have to be digested by a completely different type of mind from generation to generation to generation. In Archer's time in 2151, you had a certain hope that you were well prepared to face what was out there. The, it literally was the unknown for them. And yes, it, they proved at very specific times during the course of the four years that they weren't as prepared as they thought. I always like focusing on um, Archer's, um, almost his confession to Hernandez in the first episode of season four, where he just said, you're not ready. I thought I was ready and I was mm-hmm. so wrong. Mm-hmm. You're not ready. But I don't think that there is a time where you're ever really completely 100% ready. You have to trust your instincts. And I think that's one thing that they would have taught their Starfleet cadets at the time was to trust your instincts, trust your training, trust your instructors, trust the information that we gave you. Take that out there and use it to your best ability. It may not be the best that we can give you, but it's the best that we can give you at this time. Kirk, on the other hand, I mean, we his exploits during the course of the original series are replete with that was required reading at the Academy, or I've read all of his exploits, or this is in his captain's log, I'll read that later. There's all these points of reference where he can go back to and say, what did this person do? In the episode in Enterprise, that episode which will not be named, that's what Riker, <laughs> that's what Riker was doing. Uh-huh. Riker needed to make a decision. He used the experiences of one of the greatest captains in the history of captains in the history of Starfleet as his basis of making that decision. His um, sounding board, if you will. He even had the actual. He had the uh, uh, the advantage of having it in a holodeck recording. So, right. but again, the, the graduating class that was man that manned the Enterprise NX01 had no luxury of that at all. Exactly. Yeah. So, it's interesting to try to compare the preparation of a Starfleet officer throughout the different time periods because, as with each generation. The stakes are larger because the universe is larger. I wouldn't even, I mean, with Miles O'Brien, his level of engineering is obviously superior to trips, but Mm -hmm. is it superior for a Starfleet officer as he is maintaining Deep Space Nine or the technology of the time? Or is he great? Yes, he is because he's a character that we love, but is he so great in the realm of the engineering world of all Starfleet officers that have been trained to do what he does. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting point. 
Well, we know he's a lot greater than Argyle. Well, yes. <laughs> so. But it, I, I guess I, I'm, you know, in a roundabout way, it really depends on the point of reference. Because, again, yeah. it's what you are using that you have been trained to use at the setting that you're in in that time period. Because if Miles O'Brien was working on something, technology that was 50 years old, he wouldn't have a problem with it. He does stumble a little bit with technology of his own time because it's challenging because he likes pushing himself to be this great engineer. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing that really Starfleet has prepared him for per se to be greater than what they were able to train him. He learned that along the way. Right. Well, it's like, I mean, you're talking about people being trained and they're being told, you know, use your instincts, use what you know. But even in that situation, no matter how well you've been trained, initially, you're a little unsure of yourself and you're a little bit nervous when you're thrown in that situation. It doesn't really matter what the job is. You know, I mean, I think about a football, a quarterback. They might be the greatest player ever. They might win the Heisman Trophy. But that first game on the road in a giant stadium in a hostile environment, they may be really shaky because it's just something new to them. It's a new experience. And no matter how much you prepare for something like that, you can't really anticipate the, all the variables and the actual impact of the environment. And so when we go back to someone like Hoshi, and you mentioned fight or flight, which I think is the prime example of this, and how nervous she is, that's what we see from her. It takes her a little bit longer than the other characters to kind of come into her own and become comfortable, but she eventually does. And she may be very well trained, but put her in that situation and uh, nature and instinct take over. And I think that's common for someone in the 22nd century, even for a Starfleet officer. And maybe you wouldn't see that from someone later on. You know, the one thing I found interesting on, in watching Enterprise versus, say, you know, what we were, what we were um, used to in the original series or Next Generation or Voyager was the Enterprise was 83 people. Yeah. And obviously there was there were certain redundancies, but that was a in sports we'd like to call that a really really shallow bench. Well, I think you would be you would be um, short on scholarships, wouldn't you, if you only had eighty three? <laughs> well, it depends on how many NCAA violations that you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I digress, but uh, you know when when I was watching the dynamics on the bridge, and I, I know this from TOS, if say Uhura needed to man navigation or 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 tactical. She could do that. She was called on that to do those functions in an emergency situation. Yeah. I didn't really see a lot of that happen on the NXO one bridge because I think at that time everyone was specialized mm-hmm. to a point. And even the bridge officers didn't have the ability to have a base knowledge of all the different terminals and all the different functions of the ship, i.e., uh, if Sulu really needed to, he could man Spock's science station mm-hmm. uh, or Chekhov could sit in command because he is command division. I don't really see that a lot. And, and I think that's probably something along the way where Starfleet's like, you know what? The bridge has to operate at peak yeah. performance to the best of its ability or the ship will fail. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something that in, in 
the training of Starfleet cadets that are in command or will be in a bridge position, they will need to be trained in a rudimentary fashion of being able to pick up those skills Mm -hmm. again for the most dire emergencies, not because your shift change is, you know, uh, is a little late or someone is, you know, coming back from dinner or hasn't beamed up and reported back to duty. You know, we're talking about oversleeping or whatever's going on, right? Yeah, or exactly. You know, any of those, <laughs> any of those potential situations where, where's so and so? I don't know. We'll get on there. We need you there. Where's Reg? Uh, yeah. He's probably in the holodeck again. Holodeck. You know. Yep. So, but yeah, exactly. Like this is where the experience of the crew that we see on Enterprise gives way to what we see later on, as the Academy adjusts its curriculum to the needs of a true spacefaring civilization, which at this point, I would say Earth really isn't. Leading up to the launch of the NX-01, people work in space. There is the Earth cargo service. There are those things, but it's not a spacefaring civilization in the sense of what we think of in Star Trek. You know, like the Klingons and the Romulans, the Federation that we know of the future, and all the many other races that we see in Star Trek flying around it's not that type of world yet. It's sort of like what we are now, just extrapolate 150 years, we're going to be doing more. You know, we'll probably have people on Mars, we'll have people on the moon, we'll have, we'll be mining asteroids. We might even have manned expeditions out to the outer solar system, you know, to see what's happening on those moons where we think there may be oceans. But it's it's just not the same type of civilization. So as you're saying, as we go along, they realize, okay, well, this was a problem. We need to teach people how to do this. This is exactly. a problem. We need to make this part of our curriculum. And then it evolves. And so bringing this back around to the whole purpose of the discussion, when people criticize Enterprise for this, when people say, well, these characters, they don't act like Starfleet officers. I, I can't believe that Hoshi's acting that way. You know, I can't believe that these two crewmen are so astonished to see a planet out of the viewport and go down there. I, I think that, oh, I think it's a symptom of the fact that when we went into Enterprise, what fans really wanted was a continuation of the 24th century. Mm-hmm. And what they got instead was the bridge between our time and the earliest days of that world that all those people live in and we wanted to get there. And and I think because of that, many people overlook the fact that what we're really seeing on screen and when we see Hoshi being neurotic and frightened, when we see even Travis being unsure of himself, even though he grew up in space, what we're really seeing is the building blocks being put into place for Star Trek. That's why it was so great that the show originally didn't have Star Trek in the title. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing I, and we do focus on Hoshi and Travis a lot because they are the younger crewmen, but even in the upper command positions like Trip and DePaul, well, not so much DePaul, Reed, but Archer, Reed. Yeah. They're not the confident personnel that you would expect to see on a starship and again you take a you take a look at these characters from what they're responsible for in their positions of the ship and then when you take a look at archer and and in relative in relative terms 
when you watch him, he is unsure. He is a little naive and he's a little wide eyed in some respects because he wants so badly to go out there and do the mission and to perform the tenant of Zephram Cochran's speech to go out there and boldly go to seek and explore and, and you know, where no man has gone before or no one has gone before. He's so excited to do that, that he may kind of divorce himself for the fact that this is really scary stuff that we're doing here. We are mm-hmm. going out into uncharted space. And it's our and we're job. We're saying, to- "Hi, here's a map to our home planet. It's like, Why don't you drop by?" <laughs> I love those instances where it's like, "Oh, by the way, we're from Earth." <laughs> I know. Here's our star chart. We're going to send you a star, a pulse map, and you can find us here. What I love about that, though, and you have to really watch the uh, the scene to to get it. But Trip is back oh, there, the- going like Earth, Earth. Yeah, don't, Earth. For- don't forget, to, don't forget to market Earth. It's going to go great with our demographic, <laughs> right? You know. So right. it's it, it, it's funny because it's everyone has their kind of like their their preconceived um, delivery of you know how who I am I'm the captain I'm from well I don't know how many times Kirk said it like or a United Spaceship or a Federation Starship or they didn't really kind of get that yeah. part of the marketing down but even yeah, so their it, message is not know. focused right it's like which one are you kirk you know you you need you need a clear brand if you want people to buy into you well the thing is that he left space dock far too early he didn't get his business cards so he was kind of <laughs> winging it you know it's like i'm from a spaceship no i'm from a earth ship no i'm from a probe you know but you get the point the point is you guys have hot chicks on your ship and let me come on board and i'll i'll sort it all out no but but going back to, again with Archer, it's it's neat to see all of them stumble every once in a while because it isn't Star Trek. It isn't perfect. It's not meant to be perfect, but so many of the, sh- of the shows that came before kind of had a mold of perfection to it. The technology looked great. The, the sheer art direction of everything looked polished and everything yeah. looked like it had a perfect place for everything. I mean, even the, the tricorders look fantastic. The communicators obviously were as minimal as possible. And then you see what Hoshi is dealing with, this giant eight-track of a machine that hooks onto your chest, and this is your universal translator. This is not the sleek communicator of the 23rd century. This is, I mean, you're really talking, you know, 33s versus digital medium. You know, mm-hmm. this is, it's the disc, but the end result is the same. You got to get that music out to the people. And... It's it's a really interesting dichotomy between you know, what all of the officers depend on in the 23rd century versus our appreciation or maybe lack of from some fans for where it came. And yeah. that was probably the biggest hurdle of the show of, you know, Brannon and um, Rick Berman at the time was how do we deconstruct all this to make it interesting for an audience that has been following us for over 20 years. Right. How do you do that? And how do you make it believable? You make it believable by trying to establish believable characters, but in doing so, in some fans' estimation, made them less believable because these people are, are scared or they're really unprofessional at their jobs yeah. or they're not nearly as good well, as they should be. Well, that takes me back to what, what I said a minute ago, which, again, I hadn't really thought that much about until we were talking here, but the fact that the show was originally called Enterprise. 
it wasn't called Star Trek Enterprise. And then the studio, of course, thought, well, I think the problem with the ratings is that it doesn't say Star Trek on it. And so people don't really know it's Star Trek. Like, yeah, okay, that's, that's the problem. But <laughs> anyway, I think the idea that Rick and Brandon originally had, that it was just called Enterprise, what's really valid about that is that you need to separate this. Okay, so Star Trek is Kirk onward. That's Star Trek. This is how do we get there? If if you if you take the words Star Trek off of it and stop thinking about it like it's going to be the same Star Trek that you're accustomed to just a little bit earlier on the timeline, I think that makes a world of difference. Now, in order to do that and not be wishy-washy about it, you would have to really stick to your guns of the original concept that they had of actually building the ship and it's set on Earth in the first season, and then they go out there. You know, they as the series goes on, you get more and more Star Trek in it because yeah. that's what fans were wanting to see. Uh, but, yeah, so just to wrap this up here, I think that my feeling, and, and I would like to know what our listeners think, and of course you can tell us about this in the Babel Conference on Facebook or send us messages through our various channels and our contact form and such, What I think is that the portrayal that the the actors gave to the characters and that the writers gave to them through the words that they wrote was very appropriate for the time period. And it's the way I think real people would react in that situation. And I, I think that it's wrong of us to expect these characters to go out there and behave like the crew of... Kirk's Enterprise or Picard's Enterprise? Well, it takes, when I thought of this uh, as a topic, one of my favorite conversations in any of the Star Trek movies is in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where Kirk gets command back of the Enterprise. And he goes to Spock's quarters and Spock is in meditation. And he said, it's just a boatload of children. How are they going to perform? And I think this is probably one of the best written lines in Star Trek about a subject matter like this, as with all living things, each according to his gifts or Mm -hmm. her gifts. That's Spock's understanding of no matter how well we train them, we can only get out of them what they will be able to produce by their own merits and how they react naturally to that situation. He can't foresee the future. He doesn't know that some of these training uh, trainees will be some of the best and brightest that Starfleet will ever have to offer. Some won't. These are people. They have been invested in by Starfleet. They have been trained up one side and down the other. They are experts, per se, in their fields of interest and specifically where they will serve the ship. But in the end, until that situation happens, you don't know. And to borrow a line from Prelude to Axanar, what captain or at that time admiral samuel travis says the only way to test out a combat ship is by combat that's the only way you're going to know the only way you're going to know how good these starfleet officers are going to perform is when you put them under something that forces them to perform bottom line absolutely great well norm thanks for joining me today and talking about this topic. And I do hope everyone will come over to the Babel Conference and let us know what you think. There's actually a thread about this going on there already. 
So you can come there and chime in as well. So Norm, uh, again, thank you so much for all of your support as an associate producer here of the show and a supporter in the network. And before I let you go, tell everyone where they can find you and what else you have going on that people should know about. Well, um, I just want to say thank you, Christopher, for giving me the opportunity to be on Warp 5. Uh, this was actually one of the first shows of Trek FM that I listened to. That, oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm, that got me involved. Um, and it's it's just been a pleasure to be able to meet you and to meet Matthew and uh, many of the guest hosts. So I just wanted to thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to participate in this show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. It's Norman Lau, N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a huge supporter, if some of you all really don't know, of Alec Peters and the Star Trek Axanar project. And you can usually find me on the Axanar fan group on Facebook. And I am also, and I love saying this, I am a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon. Uh, as an associate producer for Warp 5, The Orb, and Star Trek Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. And most recently, the 602 Club, uh, because I felt that it was the quickest way to win Ruby's heart. <laughs> One way or the other, you're going to figure out the names of her children, aren't you? Everyone loves a redhead. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Norm, for dropping by today. Thank you, Christopher. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion of the 22nd century training for Starfleet officers and maybe what was going on at the Academy back then. But that's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Because we're basically pitching a, a story arc. Right. Like like we're Babylon 5, and we've got this five-year arc. Yeah. But we're going to have a three-year plus maybe the cartoons plus the movies arc. Earl Grey. Billy has 25 self-stealing <laughs> symbols, and he needs to trade with a non-Federation species using a different currency. What does Billy do? The Orb. They've already been kind of to that next step. I mean, he massages her all the time and well, he knows her that, out of the tub again. He knows that so, she has rashes on her thighs. Yeah, are, so. yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, so... To the journey! You know, talk about a, a heavy-handed message. It, like, literally, on your back! It, like, literally, on your back. Like, I want you to feel the weight. You know, like, this <laughs> Like this is the kind of non-subtlety that makes it fun. Warp 5. The fact of the matter is, Bakula is playing this character just as he should. It's true that Archer seems a bit uneasy, lacking in confidence. But he's the first human captain to see these strange new worlds. The Ready Room. I haven't gotten to the point in my research where I'm I'm that caught up. I mean, I, I'm very much stuck right in season one of Next Gen and kind of have That's blinders kind of on everything else right now. Yeah, boy, tell me about it. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And we have kind of reached a milestone here, a little earlier than you might think we would have reached that milestone. This is the final episode of Star Trek uh, for which we have a writing credit given to Gene Roddenberry. Commentary, Trek stars. And he wanted it the first part to be called Becoming Houdini and the second part to be called Being Houdini. Should have been called Houdini Begins. Yes. And Houdini Rises. Yes. Melodic Treks. At only 22 years of age, he conducted the Munich Symphony Orchestra using 110 pieces 
a 60-piece choir and a 30-piece children's choir. Sometimes you need the children to get them high notes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us everywhere that you get your podcasts and your audio. You can find us in iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Windows Phone, BlackBerry. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to our website and stream from the show page or download the MP3 file. On the show page, just look at the SoundCloud player, and in the upper right corner, you'll see the little download button that lets you download the file. You can also grab the RSS link there as well and pop that into any application that you like. If you're an iTunes user or a podcast user on your iPhone or your iPad, please hit the subscribe button. That will help you get the show as soon as I publish it, and that also helps us rise up in the search rankings. Because search results in iTunes are determined by a number of factors, but three key factors are lifetime subscription numbers, star ratings, and written reviews. So subscribing really helps us out. And also while you're there, if you leave us a star rating and a written review, that will also help other Enterprise fans find the show as they're searching for Star Trek podcasts. Plus, I just love to hear what you think about the show. So I hope you'll take some time and do that for us. And if you're not an iTunes user... You can get us in those other places that I just mentioned. And if you're looking for a great podcast application for Android, one that I hear is excellent is Pocket Casts. It's also available for iOS. And so as far as I know, it pulls from the iTunes directory, but it has a great interface. It's a really nice way to get the podcast on your Android device if you don't want to use Stitcher and subscribe pretty much in the same way iOS users do. Now, as I mentioned during the show, I would love to hear what you think about Starfleet training in the 22nd century and whether or not it's appropriate for characters to behave the way that Hoshi did in Fight or Flight, for example. You can come over to our listener discussion group on Facebook, the Babel Conference. That's B-A-B-E-L. Just type that into the search field on Facebook or go to our website and click discussion on the menu bar. Both of those will take you there. It is a closed group, so you'll need to click join and then I'll let you right on in there. And come join into the conversation. And not just Enterprise, but we're talking about everything from all of the Star Trek series to the literary universe, and because we have the 602 Club, which Norm mentioned, even a few non-Star Trek things in there as well. So come on over and join us there. It's just for our listeners, and we really want all of you to be there with us on Facebook. Now, other ways that you can reach out to us include our website, where you can go to trek.fm contact. Use the form that you find there, choose to send to a show, and choose Warp 5, and that'll come to me by email. If you're a Twitter user, you can find the network on Twitter at TrekFM. You can also find me on Twitter. My username is C, Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. We also have a brand page on Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM. And I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash C, Brian Jones. I'm also in the Babel Conference, of course. So if you join that, I'd love to talk to you there about Star Trek. One other way that you can send me feedback is by voice, and I would love to hear your voice. And the way that you do that is to go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. That's the word speak and the word pipe. And all you need is the microphone on your webcam or your smartphone or your tablet, and you'll be able to record a message and upload it to me as an MP3 file right there from the page. You'll also see the tool for that on our website. And while we're talking about feedback, we've gotten quite a few messages since the last time I recorded a show when I wasn't racing to get ready for my eye surgery anyway. 
And here is one from Jim Kakavekos in Indiana. And Jim, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your name there. But Jim says, Ahoy! Became a big fan of all the podcasts, but especially Warp 5. Love the show. In episode 55, you debated about Shatner appearing in a Mirror Universe episode. Great thought. However, I would suggest, since we are talking about time travel, Chris Pine would have been a better choice. Or the two could meet a la young old Spock. Just a thought. Keep up the good work, James E.K. And then he says, close, but I tried to get my parents to change it to a T. So, of course, he could be James T.K., like James T. Kirk. So, Jim, thank you for that message. That's an interesting thought. I mean, we would have to do some tricky time travel here because if we were going back to 2004, which is what we were talking about in terms of having Shatner in a Mirror Universe episode, Chris Pine wasn't on the scene and was pretty young then, but, you know, who knows with time travel? Maybe we can make it work. I find your comment here about the two of them meeting like young and old Spock interesting because the rumors about William Shatner possibly being in the next Star Trek film, the main rumor that I've heard of how it would actually play out in the script is that they would be meeting themselves. So Zachary Quinto and Chris Pine, Spock and Kirk, would be meeting Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner, Spock and Kirk, who would be playing older versions of the younger characters that we see in the Abramsverse. Just a rumor that I've heard around and... I, you know, who knows if that's true or not, but they seem to be thinking along the same lines as you there. All right. Well, thanks for that message, Jim, and thanks for listening. I'm glad you found the show in the network. Now, we also have a message from John Edgeworth in Georgia. He writes, Christopher, just finished listening to Warp 5 at number five. Wow. Boy, I don't even remember what I talked about in that episode. That was a long time ago. But he goes on to say, first, let me say I am a huge Star Trek fan going back to TOS. I have watched each and every series and love each in its own right. A few months ago, I was missing Star Trek, so I decided to rewatch a series. I started with Deep Space Nine, as I have not seen that show since its first run. A few weeks ago, I finished all the eps except the last seven. I am waiting to be in the right mood to finish it off. I then started Enterprise, and I am on episode 17. I had watched some reruns here and there, but never its total run, so I went to episode 1 and started. Wow, I am loving it. It's like being introduced to everyone again. This time, I know a little history of the show and the characters, so for me, it adds a little. When it first aired, I was very critical of a few things, like the strip on top of all the uniforms, which made you think TNG. The Pips, again TNG, The Ready Room, TNG, and so on. I thought this was pre-TOS, not pre-TNG. But having spent 30 plus years in the U.S. Army, I know how uniform styles can go back and forth. And so I must say I agree with many, if not all of your assessments of the show and the characters. Your descriptions of Archer, T'Pol, Trip, Reed, Malcolm, etc. are almost always right on the spot with my own opinion. Finally, I must add that you may want to consider adding the paperbacks into your history of the characters. For me, adding these stories is wonderful. It keeps the characters alive. It developed and promoted Archer, T'Pol, Malcolm, Reed, etc. Best of all, Trip is not dead. I love it. Oh, we can say it's not canon, but if the powers have okayed the storylines in advance, and they have, then in my opinion, 
we must consider these stories. Thanks, John E. Well, John, I actually do consider these things part of the characters. You you may not know if you're new to the network that I do a show called Literary Treks with my co-host Matthew Rushing. And on that show, we talk exclusively about the comics and the novels of Star Trek, and we interview authors. So when a new book comes out, we always have the author on, and we go behind the scenes of how they wrote the book and what they're thinking about the characters. And so naturally for me, everything that happens in the novels, I incorporate that into my own what I call headcanon. You know, I, I know it differs from what's on the screen, And I do have a way of kind of separating it in my mind. So I have what happened on the screen as one level. And then I have my headcanon, which is this much richer tapestry of what has happened in the Star Trek universe based on what happens in the books and in the comics. So I'm totally with you there. And as you say, I think with Enterprise, that's especially important because the series is so disjointed with the change of direction from season to season and because it got cut short. So great recommendation there. I'm with you, everyone. Now do as John says, go read the Enterprise novels and incorporate those a bit into your own headcanon. We have a message here from another John, and this is John Bomlin in Japan, just here with me. I've actually talked to John a bit on Twitter and by email And so I know he's over here with me, but on the other side of the country. But John writes, Hey, Christopher, I never listened to your show before, and I just listened to your solo cast on Warp 5, number 56. It was my first Warp 5 show. Well, that's interesting, John, because that was the first Warp 5 that I've ever done solo. In fact, it's one of the very few, it actually may be the only podcast on the network apart from Hyper Channel that I've ever done solo. So interesting that that would be the first one that you hear, but I'm glad you liked it. So John goes on to write, The reason I started seeking out some Trek-related material is I wanted to get back in touch with Western philosophy and ideals. I've been living in Japan for the last two years, where your honor and collectivism take precedent over your morality and individuality. This has tried my own values beyond belief. What I thought of as an outdated concept is a way of life here. The future me, many other Trekkers, and Gene Roddenberry wants is a purely Western concept, and sometimes it's made me think, is it really possible to get there in my lifetime? That's why Enterprise was so important to me, and so is Hoshi's character. However, the writers just didn't understand Japanese culture enough to really make that character worthwhile. I wish they had done more research. However, they were pretty on par with the power distance between her and Archer, and also the challenges Japanese women face in general. Even in the 22nd century, I'm not sure it would be very different. Even though Japan's space program isn't far behind the U.S.'s and Russia's, if not ahead in its own way, the most xenophobic G20 country, Japan, has a long way to go. I've had kids point at me and ask their parents, what is that? Looking at a non-Japanese person for the first time. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I also felt they could have done so much more with Hoshi when they didn't. You're doing good work. Keep going with this and reach out. The radio waves already reached the other side of the planet. Sincerely, John. So, uh, John, yes, thank you for your message. And of course, as I told John in an email response, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily see Japan in the same way that John does here in this letter, possibly by virtue of the fact that I've lived almost all of my adult life in Japan and I'm actually more Japanese than I am American. And I'm very assimilated into the culture here. Though I do remember having these very similar views 
when I had only been here for a few years myself. I do agree that the Enterprise writers did not understand Japanese culture. Hoshi may be Japanese, but, you know, she doesn't really come across as Japanese. The main thing that stands out to me is that she likes to make miso soup. And uh, how stereotypical can you get beyond that? I don't know. It would be like having a Japanese TV show where there was one American on the crew and they like to roast hot dogs all the time. I don't know. So, yeah. The thing for me is that, you know, I don't expect the cultures represented in Star Trek to, I don't expect those people to act the way that they would in that given culture in 2014, in the future. Because I expect, and I would certainly hope, without losing the uniqueness that makes each culture special, I would hope that a lot of those lines and those divisions would fall by that point. Because it's a united earth. And I would hope that we would all be together at that point. Uh, But they definitely did not do things with the Hoshi character that they could have done. As Norm and I talked about quite a bit, actually, I guess, today when we talked a lot about Hoshi. But, uh, you know, maybe the way she reacts to being in space for the first time as a human was spot on. But, yeah, she doesn't really come across as Japanese to me either. Anyway, it was great, John, to find out that there is a listener here in Japan. I'm looking forward to meeting you when you're in Tokyo next time. And thanks so much for your letter and thanks for listening. So that's all the feedback that we have for this show. I know it was a bit long, but you know, if you guys take the time to write into me, I want to share that with everyone. And I really appreciate hearing from you. And so I hope everyone listening will send me email through the contact form, come over to Facebook, join the Babel Conference, or hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Now, if you want to hear more of my thoughts on Star Trek Beyond Enterprise, I just mentioned a moment ago that I do literary treks with Matthew Rushing. I also do a lot of other shows on the network. There's Hyper Channel, which is our new show, also continuing mission about fan films and games. There's also The Ready Room, which is about all five live-action Star Trek series and other general Star Trek discussion that we have during the news segment. There's Matter Stream about social issues and science and sometimes creativity that's not part of Star Trek. And I also co-host the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar, which Norm is an associate producer of as well. And I co-host that with Axanar creator and executive producer, Alec Peters. So uh, tune into that if you want to hear more of my thoughts on the world of Star Trek. Before I let you go, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They are the best source of audiobooks that you're going to find anywhere. I've been listening to audiobooks for 15 years through Audible, in fact, which is quite amazing. And, you know, I've tried it in different ways. Um, I guess I should actually say I've been listening to audiobooks for probably 25 years or so, at least, because I used to buy them on cassette tape. And I had uh, most of the original, the like the next generation hardcovers, those books that they were putting out, and they put them out as audio tapes. I had those. I used to listen to them in my car until I broke the tapes because I listened to them over and over. Great thing about Audible is I now have those again, but I have them as digital files, so I don't have to worry about wearing them out. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Just sign up for the trial. If you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep that audiobook, so there is nothing to lose. But when you try Audible, it makes a real difference in our ability to keep not only Warp 5, but all of the shows on the network coming to you every week. 
And they have lots of stuff beyond Star Trek as well. Just about every book that comes out, at least non-Star Trek books, that come out these days as hardcover paperback, they have an audio version that's released at the same time. And Audible has those for you to download. So there is a lot for you to choose from there. There's something for everyone. And it's just a great way to read all the books that you've always wanted to read, but never thought you'd have the time for. So take advantage of this offer for our listeners and go to audibletrial.com slash and get your free book today. And we really thank Audible for their support of Warp 5 and the network. One more thing that I would love for you to check out is Enterprise in Space. This is a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that Larry Nemechek and I are both involved in now. And this project will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The orbiter is called the NSS Enterprise, and it will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space. And you can help make it happen. Beyond the education component, which is extremely important to me and is one of the things that attracted me so much to the project, there's also the chance for you to design the actual ship. And you don't need to be an engineer for this. At this point, we're having a design contest, and what we're looking for is the aesthetics of the ship. What should the NSS Enterprise look like? So if you're an artist, if you can draw, even if you're not the greatest artist, if you have a vision for what the ship should look like, you can enter our design contest if you go to enterpriseinspace.org. Now, it's free for you to enter. And a great thing about the educational component as well is that all of these experiments designed by students, kindergarten through postgraduate, they will be free to the students to fly into space. And the way that we make that happen is through your support and the support of corporate sponsors as well. We need everyone to contribute to this wonderful opportunity to put an actual enterprise into space for the first time and orbit the Earth and return the ship to Earth. And it doesn't cost very much. You can donate $20 to Enterprise in Space. You can get membership in the National Space Society for a rate much lower than is normally the case and get all the benefits of membership there as well. And most importantly, you'll be making a difference in the lives of children and in the lives of society in general because of all the things that we'll be testing out on this orbiter. Go check it out. It's a wonderful project. Again, enterpriseinspace.org is the URL. And I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that you will support the project. Well, thanks again to Norm for dropping by today. It was great to have Norm on the show with me. You know, I talked to Norm a good bit. He's been on the 602 Club with Matthew on a number of shows that have been recorded. But it's my first time to record a show with Norm, and it was a wonderful experience. And I look forward to having him back soon, and I hope you do too. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.